Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of Front Porch Conversation on Justice. Uh, Today we're going to talk about social justice and social responsibilities and issues related to to that topic. Uh, We're happy to have with us today uh, Andrew Millard. Uh, He's a minister at the Unitarian Universal Fellowship of the Peninsula in Newport News, Virginia. Welcome, Andrew. 
Thank you, Charles. It's good to be here. Uh, we're happy that you're here today, and we have three areas that we want to look at today, Andrew, and uh, along the lines of racial justice, immigrant justice, and economic justice. I know you all yes. at the uh, Unitarian Church here in Newport News are, are quite involved with those issues, and we want to look at it from the perspective and what you're doing and how you're navigating uh, those those tough responsibilities that we all need to be focused on. Uh, so, but we'll start off uh, just talking to you about um, uh, some of the things you are doing there at the uh, uh, in the in the Peninsula area, and also uh, along the lines of racial justice. Uh, I, I know one of the the talking points with the uh, Unitarian Church. Uh, it should be with everybody. Uh, this, under racial justice, states that uh, every person has value as a member of the human family, which is critical, um, so important, uh, and uh, to to defining society and honoring one another in our in our quest for life. Uh, also. Also, I see under the same offering of, social, of racial justice that the suffering caused by racism must be ended if we want to create fair and loving communities. And that's a great statement, a great statement to make. So first, let's talk about Andrew um, and his path to where he is today in Newport News and how you got there. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew, if you would. Uh, sure. Um, I seem to be having connection problems, so hopefully it's okay now. If not, I'll have to call in using a phone. Um, I grew up in uh, England and uh, came out to the U.S. Um, almost 20 years ago now to go to graduate school. Uh, that was in physics and uh, went to various different parts of the country, as I started to develop a research career, um, but had just moved to Connecticut in 2001 when later that year 9-11 happened. And it really made me question everything that I was doing with my life, what the use of the research that I was involved in would ultimately be. Um, I've always believed in the importance of basic research and what it can then lead to, but I felt that what I was doing wasn't of immediate, wasn't of sufficient immediate use, or wasn't immediately helpful to people, and I really felt like that was something at that time that I, I needed to be doing. Um, thankfully, not long after moving to Connecticut, I had joined the Unitarian Society of Hartford and had started going there, and it made a huge difference to me to be a part of a congregation at that time um, that could help me process what I and so many other people were feeling at that time. Uh, it also happened that there was uh, a seminary, Hartford Seminary, not far down the road from me, and I'd actually already planned to take a class there on the subject of environmental ethics, um, not really knowing what I was going to do with that, but more out of interest than anything else. 
um, Hartford Seminary hasn't offered the Masters of Divinity program for a number of decades, but it did have partnerships with other schools that did. And as I started to learn more about Unitarian Universalism and what it might mean to become a minister, uh, that path seemed to make more and more sense to me. So um, after a few more years in Connecticut and uh, getting married there too, uh, my wife and I moved to Colorado so that I could be a full-time student at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. Uh, that's where I graduated from in 2010. Uh, I also did a nine-month internship at the First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque in New Mexico. And... Um, then I was called to serve the UU Fellowship of the Peninsula here in Newport News, uh, starting a little over seven years ago, uh, and I've been here since, growing uh, in my own abilities and capacities at the same time that the congregation has been growing too. Well, what has been the focus uh, since you've been here uh, on the peninsula? Uh, first, let me ask, what, what has been your observation of, of social justice and social justice and issues surrounding social justice since your arrival here? Um, it's been a mixture of things, I guess. Um, I mean, this, in many ways, this seems like a quieter area than um, compared to, say, Southside, Norfolk, for instance, um, or Richmond. Um, we've had members go and get involved in many of the Black Lives Matter efforts, for instance. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on right here on the peninsula. I know that our geography in this part of Virginia is a, is a challenge in many ways. Um, but one of the things that I have noticed, and this was in large part um, following the birth of my daughter five years ago, and thinking about um, what schools she would go to. Um, my wife and I believe in the importance of public schools and the role that they play in sustaining a viable middle class and helping people to get into the middle class. And we were zoned for a school that was consistently um, incompletely accredited where we were living in Newport News at the time. And it didn't take much research to um, realize that this school and many of the others that are struggling, um, there was a correlation with the demographics of the students, and they were more likely to be majority children of color. And then we started looking at Uh, and again, there seems to be a racial component and, for that matter, a, a class component to what's going on in, in schools and how well they are doing. Um, my congregation, uh, which is right on the corner of Warwick and Young's Mill, um, 
has a couple of neighborhoods behind it, um, which many of us realize we need to do a lot more um, engagement with our immediate neighbors rather than just our members who come from all across the peninsula and even beyond to get here. Uh, we have one residential neighborhood that um, is quite diverse racially, and we have another neighborhood um, which is mostly African-American and um, is government housing in some way, uh, where there's actually a boys and girls club, even though the property is actually owned by the city, which means that the boys and girls club can't use it some of the time, including during the summer, when they probably really do need to use it because that's when the children are home. So there are there are definite issues even in our immediate neighborhood here um, of economic inequality, uh, racial inequality. Um, we've started to get involved in some immigrant issues particularly around the subject of uh, refugees who are trying to be uh, settled. Uh, we're mostly doing that in partnership with other organizations like Catholic Charities and the Hampton Mosque. But in terms of uh, racial justice and economic justice, there are real needs in our, in our very own neighborhood. We do not have to go far uh, to see people in need. So, so how are you... Uh, how is your congregation re reaching out to the community? As I uh, stated from one of the tenets that I see uh, on the social justice uh, in the Unitarian uh, Church uh, Fellowship, uh, yes, I, I see every person has value as a member of the human family, which is very true. The suffering caused by racism must be ended if we want to create fair and loving communities. How are you reaching out uh, to, to, to bring equality and fairness within the community at the same time showing that relational love to people? Yes. Or the congregation has been doing for many years, some of which are newer pieces of this. Um, the congregation for um, getting on for a couple of decades now has been part of the Living Interfaith Network uh, here on the peninsula. Um, and in particular, uh, two nights every winter, um, we run what is called the People Offering Resources Together or Port Winter Shelter. Uh, we're not big enough to host that. There can be up to 100 clients who have need of something like that on a winter's night, particularly if it's cold. Um, so we tend to um, partner with a larger congregation, uh, one of the bigger Baptist or Methodist churches in Denby uh, often. Um, they provide the space. Uh, we come in, we provide... Um, a nutritious dinner. Um, we provide other hospitality to the guests uh, and we look after them overnight and then we provide them with a breakfast uh, to take with them in the morning as well. Uh, more recently, this started about seven years ago. Uh, we partner with St. Paul's Episcopal Church downtown and currently 
every uh, third Friday, we uh, similarly prepare a meal for often about 20, but sometimes as many as 40 people um, who are then hosted by St. Paul's on a Friday evening. So these are more sort of direct service activities, um, giving somebody food because otherwise they wouldn't have any food, uh, giving them a warmer place because otherwise they'd be out in the cold. Uh, but of course, as the saying goes, uh, if you feed someone a fish, they have something to eat right there and then. But if you uh, teach them to fish, uh, then they're in a much better place in the long term. Um, but a third piece of that saying that I heard a number of years ago is that you also have to ensure that people have access to the place where there are fish so that they can actually do fishing. So service, uh, directly helping people in need is a piece of this, but it doesn't do anything by itself to change the system that puts people at those, in those disadvantaged situations in the first place. So one of the things um, we do in addition to the service activities is um, educate ourselves about these problems. Uh, like most Unitarian Universalist congregations, we are mostly white people. Um, we are mostly middle class and generally pretty educated people when it comes to academic or career topics. But many of us don't have a lot of experience uh, of what people who don't have our advantages are going through. Uh, Port and St. Paul's are obviously great ways to see firsthand uh, what is really going on uh, in our area. But there's still a lot of education to do in terms of how did we get into these situations where we are now? Uh, where do these unjust policies come from? Uh, what is the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow that is still with us today, even though at surface value, people might claim that the laws that currently exist are colorblind, and yet we somehow end up with segregated neighborhoods and practically segregated schools for that matter. So educating ourselves uh, is a big piece of this. And we've done a lot of that since the start of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, or at least uh, since that became a lot more visible um, four years ago. Um, from there, it is a matter of taking what we have learned and um, going to protests and witnessing to the injustice, uh, which we have done in a number of different ways. Um, as well as to directly advocate for change uh, in the system that puts people into these unjust situations. Uh, so during lobby days in uh, the early winter, uh, we often have people go up to Richmond to meet with legislators to talk about um, everything from um, work and housing policies to uh, voting district gerrymandering that is such a problem right now. Uh, but we're also, in, um, we take care not to just point the finger outwards either. Uh, we need to recognize ways where we are falling short in our, within our own walls 
and try to address those as well. So we're doing things on, on many different fronts at the same time. Uh, one of the things we're having a conversation right now is whether we should have one particular focus that is something that really we can adopt as a congregational project rather than things that different members or different committees do. Uh, one of those is working with the Boys and Girls Club that I mentioned in the neighborhood that is practically adjacent to us. Um, another is working with the Southeast community in Newport News. Um, we've already done a little bit with them thanks to the Sierra Club. Um, but they have real issues with uh, air quality um, thanks to some of the industrial facilities. And so that's, uh, that's an environmental racism issue going on in the Southeast community. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you... One of the things um, that I want to touch on that you you mentioned um, sure. is the is the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, and 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 you you did say that that you were as a congregation you do engage with the protests and also um, yep. the learning process. How how is that done? I mean, how who who comes in and conducts the learning process? So so all too often lately. Uh, in the recent years, one of the things that I've noticed that there have been a lot of uh, whites trying to educate whites about a subject matter. Uh, yeah. And I think one what, what of the things is missing there. You know, I can't, as an African-American, I can't be a white person and reflect through your eyes. And yeah. conversely, you can't do the same for me. So how are you? how are you managing that process, especially in the churches uh, predominantly white and predominantly middle class, basically. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one, one piece of it, um, I mean, I personally have given a number of sermons on the topic um, over the last few years, trying to draw primarily on um, materials written and produced uh, by African-American individuals um, so that it, it doesn't just become an echo chamber for white people, but we are actually listening to the things that people of color are actually saying about what's going on. Um, part of this, uh, I also believe, is um, white people addressing the problems that they see being caused by other white people. So, for instance, um, I've addressed a couple of times now the frequent substitution of Black Lives Matter by All Lives Matter um, by white people as a way of minimizing the, the very real racial injustice issues. And so when it's a white person saying well, no, all lives matter, then that's something that I believe other white people have a responsibility to address. Um, we also have other situations, discussion groups, um, where uh, congregants are essentially doing that for one another, or they may even provide a sermon on Sunday morning too, um, for mutual education. But... Um, as many African-American writers have already pointed out, there is an issue 
um, there are inherent issues with any group of white people trying to work on an issue where they are privileged um, and not engaging in ways that actually produce relationships and particularly accountability with the people who are actually on the um, disadvantaged side of that white privilege and white supremacy. So, you know, I believe at this point that my congregation has done uh, a good amount of work around this. One of the results of that is that we were able to put up a Black Lives Matter banner on our building um, back in February. Uh, and that's something that I, I don't know would have been possible a few years before that uh, when people still had um, a lack of understanding of what was really going on. Uh, but I think it's now time for us to take the next step and actually engage in accountability relationships with uh, the people that we say that we want to help. Um, you know, we're not really doing this for ourselves. Yes, we want to make society better for everybody, and that includes us. Um, but if we say that we are trying to address injustice, then at the end of the day, it's about the people who are suffering from that, which for most, in most cases is not our own people. Yeah, that's very true, very true. Uh, this is Charles Cheek, your host of Front Porch Conference, Conversation on Justice. I'm, we're having a conversation today with, about social justice and social responsibility with Andrew Millar. Uh, the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship here on the peninsula in Newport News. Um, Andrew, you you say things wouldn't have been having that banner up um, several years ago might not have been received well. When you did put it up this time, what was the impact from the public and within the church itself? Um, well, within a congregate within the congregation. Um, particularly at the end of the last calendar year, coming into the beginning of this one, there were a number of people specifically asking for the banner to go up. Um, a few people were, for various reasons, uh, not wanting or were at least uncomfortable with the idea of a banner going up. But I think it has led to a broader conversation within the congregation um, about what's going on and what we can do. Uh, one of the things that we did at the beginning of May, for instance, and this was in a request to, from a, a, in response to a call from really a nationwide network of uh, UUs, both UUs of color and white UUs, um, in response to issues within our own uh, movement, uh, we held back at the beginning of May uh, what we called a teach-in on white supremacy, which is rather than a traditional service based around a 20-minute sermon uh, and people mostly on the listening end of that, I guess, um, we set people up in small circles within the sanctuary and had them talk to one another about, in many ways, some pretty hard questions um, about race and racism and uh, for the majority of us who are white, what it means to be white in this society and how we understand that. 
Um, and so this path that we've been on, including putting up the banner, uh, I think paved the way for us to be able to do that on that Sunday morning. Uh, outside our own walls, I think we have had um, a few visitors who specifically mentioned seeing it and um, wanting to come check it out because they saw it as they were driving down Warwick Boulevard or whatever, um, including from a, at least a couple of visitors of color uh, an appreciation that we were willing to take that public stand. Um, I know in many other cities uh, this has been a lot more common, um, but uh, you know we're, we're not that big a congregation in, in not that big a city. Uh, but I think that does indicate um, that people outside have seen the banner, and at least some people you know appreciate the message of it, and that we're putting it out there. You you mentioned early on about the. Uh, your observation and the difference between um, it, just the peninsula being a quieter area and, and really addressing a lot of the injustice, injustice issues uh, yeah. and the south side being Norfolk, Virginia Beach, and uh, Chesapeake and those areas and Richmond were more out front and vocal. Uh, yeah. and, and looking at it, this area as a quieter area, is, is it because of the apathy or or Aren't there enough activists in this area to make a difference to uh, to garner people to start to make movement in, in the direction of addressing some of the injustices? That's that's a good question. Um, some of it, I think, is is simply about the um, the number of people who live here. Yeah. Uh, whether there's a critical mass for some of these movements. Um, I mean, there were certainly efforts. Um, the NAACP chapters in Newport News and Hampton both got restarted in recent years, uh, and they are steadily getting more active. Um, there have certainly been some demonstrations and protests uh, of, of different forms here on the peninsula. Um, I, I would hesitate to simply call it apathy. Um, I, I, no, I, my impression from talking to people is that they do realize that there are issues around here that need to be addressed. Um, but maybe more than anything else, it, it's simply the, the population density that we have and the fact that, you know, thanks to the James River, we are cut off so much, uh, at least... Um, you know, we feel we are because of the difficulty of getting across those bridges and through those tunnels uh, to get involved in things south side. Um, but there does at least seem to be um, a growing, in my experience, a growing conversation and awareness around some of these issues and a growing recognition that um, there's, there's work to do and more people need to get involved. Uh, what the path is to get there, I'm not totally sure at this point. Yeah, I mean, and that's a that's a good observation uh, because one of the things I I see uh, that a lot of movement in this area, a quite a considerable amount of movement, 
was stymied, but I see this sort of surge coming from the, the younger generation, the 30s, and, and some, and yeah. quite a bit from the young 20-year-olds. Um, but then with the older generations of people of color, there has to be some sort of validation from from the white class, uh, and and that's what I'm seeing more of that. That organizations are coming from outside of the city of Newport News and Hampton, uh, yeah. namely the York, York counties and Williamsburg, that are coming in uh, with these various programs to address issues, and it's sort of a validation that it's okay. But but I think the missing piece there is uh, there are not many relationships being formed before these. Movements or activities are taking place. And I say yeah. the word activity because they're more like events than they are yeah. a continuum, of, like a movement. So, um, yeah. so the people are obviously leery of folks coming in in the first place and said, you know, address the issue like the environmental issue down in Southeast Newport News because that's been present for generations. Um, yeah. And, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, folks are. I mean, it's things that I mean. I grew up in that area, so we all knew about those type of things and the, and the things that were affecting folks and their health. But yeah. now, all of a sudden, it, it comes along, you know. And, uh, and and the thing about it, folks were living in these brown fields. I mean, there were actually apartments and homes there, uh, mm. contaminated uh, fields in that area. Uh, but moving right along, I want talk about this immigrant justice, um, you know, with what's coming out of Washington now in terms of um, punishing folks who uh, in so-called sanctuary cities or who are setting up sanctuary um, uh, churches yeah. and houses or to uh, address those issues. Is that, have you found it to be a, a, a larger issue? Uh, because I think where you are is more prevalent than it is in other parts of the city. Um, I, I'm not aware of any situations in, in this immediate part of town. Um, we do have some people who've been trying to engage with some of the uh, immigrant justice efforts that other organizations are already doing. Um, you know, one of the things we recognize is that we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, if somebody's already working on something, it makes much more sense to partner with them rather than try and duplicate what they're doing and probably make a whole other set of mistakes along the way. Uh, I do know that in a number of uh, bigger cities, um, there are some UU congregations that have offered sanctuary. Um, in other places, uh, I was just back at... Uh, my internship site in Albuquerque, for instance, and they were telling me about how they are, they're not a sanctuary church themselves, but they're working with another church in town that is. Um, but in terms of uh, immigrant needs in this particular area, uh, we're, we're really still learning uh, about what needs there are and what we might be able to do, again, as I say, in partnership with other organizations. Economic justice, uh, obviously the inequality uh, from, from, the, from the southeast of Newport News to 
other areas actually is starting to spread as they tear down um, various housing uh, and dislocate people or relocate people yeah. to other areas, and it, it establishes new pockets of not only um, poverty but a whole bunch of other social issues. Uh, what do you see in terms of getting out front on, on these issues? Uh, because a lot of times we, we become more reactive. And, and as I look yeah. at uh, uh, this, the day, and uh, I know I put up the topic, the party is over, and the last song is we need to sing and practice this social justice and social responsibility uh, actually until the day we die. Uh, but in doing yeah. so, we, must, we need to become more advocates. Like, like to to be up front and address these issues before uh, they become real problems. And once we become reactive, then it establishes it becomes weary and it becomes tiring uh, because oh yeah, fighting the system is is hard enough when you know it's before you know what's going to happen. But after it happens, um, so how can we make meaningful impact? And I'm, and I'm talking about together, not just black, not just white, but collectively together. And how do we get there? I don't know that we've figured that out yet. Um, with the, the surge of organizations that have come into being um, following the election, um, a Unfortunately, it took something like that to sort of prompt this. It would have been nice um, <laughs> there to be more engagement with many of these issues before November. Um, but what, what heartens me is that um, even if we don't know what to do, and, and I agree with you that getting out front and not simply being reactive is is essential because yeah, there's way too much fatigue. Um, you know, even from people who thought they fought all these fights decades ago, and we're now having to go through all of them all over again. Um, but what what heartens me is seeing um, these groups that are coming together, um, in many ways, in defense of democracy itself, and. As part of that, uh, wanting to work on really all of these interlocking issues, but particularly the the economic piece of it too. Uh, I mean, if somebody is working two or three jobs, um, they just they don't have the time to work on any of the bigger pieces of this that would ironically make their lives easier but that's something that takes time um, you know I think if there was anything obvious that we could all do now that would make a big change now uh, we would already be doing it right um, it, it interlocks with um, with voting rights uh, if people either don't get to vote or are essentially tricked thanks to misinformation um, for voting against their own self-interest, um, and that makes it worse. Um, if people are going into bankruptcy because of healthcare costs, then that becomes their primary concern, not you know getting on a bus to go up to 
Richmond or Washington to speak with legislators. Um, I mean, if you suppose that we were in a much better place thanks to the civil rights movement and other social movements of the 1960s, and I'm not saying that we were, but suppose, you know, you believe that that was when we had made the most progress and since then we've slid backwards, then how many more years is it going to take to put right the things that have gone wrong in the last uh, 50 years? Um, you know, I, I would love to believe that there's something that I can tell my own congregants on a Sunday morning, that if they all went out and did this one thing, that would fix everything. But there never are any magic bullets. There are, there are no magic spells. It's hard work and building relationships and developing accountability and being in partnerships with other people that eventually, um, I trust as a matter of faith, will bring about the beloved community. But there are no shortcuts. Well, well, that's that's you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. That's the magic bullet. As a matter of faith, uh, if we can collectively come together, because I think one of the things we look back, the people kind of rested on their laurels uh, when yeah, with the, with the civil rights movement, they were talking about uh, legislative versus relational. Uh, yep. And you, you can't you can legislate from here to doomsday, uh, but until <laughs> people's hearts and minds are uh, come together, and they can yeah. see that it's not going to be an easy road to get wherever we need to go, and there are going to be some ups and downs, and there are going to be some casualties here and there, but maintaining uh, on that road and not deviating uh, to everything that comes along that shows uh, what they see is the the road least traveled and the less work they have to do in order to get there. Uh, yeah. I think that's part of the problem there. I think that's part of what happens when we get these un- these unhealthy choices uh, that are that get into public office and able to cause so much havoc. Um, yeah. And the, and the whole piece, the, the central piece, a lot of it centers around this economic justice uh, because a, a lot of it falls from there. Uh, because one of the things I, I tell people, we didn't know we were poor until we went somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and you kind of settle in with what you you were giving, and you you knew that was enough to survive on. And you were happy, and you were able to, to do things. And I think that, that when we look at this whole economic justice piece, that uh, it's how we examine it, I think, is how we look at it. And in terms of how we apply it to other people, uh, in yeah. terms of addressing it in, in the poor communities, uh, or what we equate as poor communities. But I see those poor communities are not totally poor uh, monetarily, but hope is, is dead. Hope is, I mean, their dignity has been taken away from them because yeah. they're asked to live up to a lifestyle that's not achievable or even makes yeah. sense for them. 
I think we have to be careful when we start introducing those kinds of uh, uh, fixes within within, within communities because most people want a relationship with somebody. They want to be to be appreciated. They want to be loved. They and they will give it back. And I think in that context we can work together. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, equally. Um, so, and I know you mentioned something about you know when when uh, you all uh, feed folks in the, in the homeless and other people on the street and other programs, and yeah. and it's, you know you say give a fish, it satisfies the immediate need, but access to pond is, is is the critical piece. How do we? Yeah. How can we get people access to that pond? Um, because the thing of it is, one of the things I always say is, uh, if a man is hungry, uh, he's not going to wait for you to plant a garden with a vegetable to grow. He's going out and get what he needs one way or another. So how do we get people from point A to point B, or point Z? I say A to Z, but be able to set aside B, C, D, E, F, G all, all along and keep them engaged enough so they can see that the pond is over there, and I can get there. Yeah. <laughs> How do we get there from here? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, we, we've, talked, we've talked about it a number of times already. I think ultimately it comes down to relationships. Um, you, know, you mentioned already the issue of people organizing events um, or even extended programs um, in other places than where they live themselves and not really doing that in the context of getting to know the people that they say they're trying to help. Um, I I would like to think that this is more about being intentional and deliberate than it is simply about hesitating. But one of the things that... Um, Unitarian Universalists as a whole have really been working on in recent years was um, going in to some place where we understand that there's a need, but rather than saying, okay, we're here to save you, we know what will help you, here's what we want you to do, um, we ask the people who are already there, what is it that you would like us to do? Um, you know, you are the people who are here. You know what you need. We, we're here to help you um, with what you have already figured out for yourselves. Um, a large part of this goes back... Um, a number, we, we have a, uh, a denomination-wide meeting every year called General Assembly, which is in different places around the country towards the end of June. And a couple of years before we were due to go to Phoenix for General Assembly, uh, the anti-immigrant law uh, was passed in Arizona. And the immediate reaction to this was, for the most part, one of two camps. It was either to immediately decide to um, boycott Arizona altogether and, you know, with whatever money, our presence there for a week would actually add to the state, um, punish the state by withholding it, um, or 
the sort of traditional white approach to injustice issues, um, go in with programs and events already planned, uh, protests and, and demonstrations, and do those, whether that was actually what the people there in Arizona and Phoenix needed or not. Um, and instead, thanks to one of our union ministers in Phoenix, who is actually now the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, we found a third path, which was to actually partner with organizations that already existed uh, in Phoenix and Arizona that were mostly already organizations created and run and staffed by people of color and partner with them with us really in a secondary support role and being accountable to them at every step of the way for what we were doing. Um, just recently, as, as I'm sure you know, the NAACP uh, created a travel advisory for Missouri, yes. which is the first state that has ever had such a travel advisory. Usually it's about other countries, these things, uh, at least from the State Department. Um, and we are scheduled to go to Kansas City, Missouri, for our General Assembly next year. And, you know, obviously there's been a, a quite a bit of concern um, about now go, planning to go to a state that has been basically deemed inhospitable to people of color. Um, not that really, thanks to Ferguson, that's really any news. Um, but I have not seen any immediate calls to boycott. I haven't seen any immediate calls to go in and get all activists. Um, rather, I've seen a growing conversation about um, what does this mean for the people of Missouri? How can we find out what it means for the people of Missouri and Kansas City? And how can we actually partner with the people who are already doing good work there in support of that work? And again, being in an accountable relationship with them. So, I mean, this is a, a long sort of sideways way of, getting, of answering your question, but I think the answer to how we get from A to Z through all those intermediate points is not by coming up with programs, but by building relationships. Mm. Because exactly. at the end of the day, it's the relationships that we have with one another that matter, not the events that we've held. Yeah, but, it, you know, as, as as human beings, we are programmed for events. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, until people reach certain points in their life, it's not like it's something that uh, that's ingrained, uh, except when you live within a certain uh, fixed boundary with with light circumstances and uh, and you you those relationships form within within the group or within the yeah. community or the neighborhood but then at best these days they are strained uh, because of, of various circumstances within the neighborhoods and community uh, yeah. you know and I often struggle with um, are people really interested 
in, in establishing relationships, and I'm speaking from those who do not live within those particular communities, and say even if I live yeah. in, in an affluent, commu- affluent community, am I forming relationships within that community uh, to, uh, or healthy relationships, I'm saying. Uh, I know some, some of them are quite unhealthy, uh, but what is it that drives people or inhibits people from going out and making those relationships. And I submit one of them is that people fear for their comfort and their lifestyle that keeps them from really forming healthy relationships with folks that are of color or people in trauma or or people in economic, uh, have been hurt economically uh, through the system, uh, that they don't go out and address those systems because, you know, uh, if I do this, I'll lose my job. Uh, I may yeah. be even working in one of those systemic uh, agencies that's actually holding people back just because I need yes. a paycheck. Uh, so yeah. are there real freedom fighters out there, or are we just putting words to something because it looks good and we can follow the crowd? Mm. Mm. I, I think, I mean, one of the things that on the privileged side with a group wanting to go in and work with another group, a less privileged group, the privileged group has to be open to the fact that the less privileged group will either say, no, thank you. We don't want, or we don't need your help. Um, And the privileged group, if that happens, has to be okay with that. Because otherwise, again, to sort of force the issue would be to impose their own privilege, which is supposedly what they're trying to avoid doing. Um, The fear of engagement around those who at least have some understanding that they are in a privileged position, yeah, I I think that's very real. Um, The idea that, you know, if we bring about economic equality then that means that it's some sort of zero-sum game and that for everybody who is now in a better situation, then that means that there must be somebody in a worse situation. Um, I think, I mean, again, that's that's a problem the privileged have. That, that's not the, the, the underserved um, people who are the targets of injustice who have that problem. That's a problem that the privileged have on their side. Um, and I believe it's something that can be addressed through education. You know, if you if you educate yourself about economic issues and class issues, for one thing, most of the people who think they're middle class realize they're actually not. They're worse off than they think they are. Um, but for another, you realize that the, the the grossly skewed distribution of wealth, um, if that was set right, yes, the top 1% of 1% would be worse off because they've been getting ridiculously rich at the expense of just about everybody else. Um, but it's not true that the people who are comfortable... Um, and that have their basic necessities met, it's not true that those would be taken away from them. Uh, And if anything, by working on economic justice, they would be a little better off 
as well. Um, the best the best antidote for both fear and ignorance is education. Uh, whether that's from learning about the issue for yourself or getting to know other people who are different from yourself. And, and I, I guess one of the, the, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today, and, and they were perplexed. Yeah, this person, and and they just couldn't understand why everybody couldn't see their way. I mean, or addressing <laughs> this injustice, social issues uh, that social justice issues that are out there, that and and all the systemic uh, institutions and agencies that are set up to keep people trapped uh, or to to keep them controlled in a way. And, and one of the things I was telling mm-hmm. them. You know, unfortunately, in this world, in our lifetime, and anybody else's lifetime, you're not going to have the majority going along with anything um, no. that requires sacrifice, and, and <laughs> sacrifice whether sacrifices monetarily or of giving up yourself, or something of yourself, um, yeah, to, to uh, for relationships because we're not wired to be there. We're wired to, uh, unfortunately, as time goes on, to to maintain self wherever self is in, 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 the, in the complex uh, layers of society in order to survive. Uh, it, it takes almost giving up everything uh, in order to, and not quite either. I mean, you can maintain, but uh, being able to say, I, I'm willing to sacrifice and give up this portion yeah. uh, in order to help my fellow man. Um, yeah. uh, and as you say it, it helps yourself too. Uh, you actually yes. elevate yourself too. Well, what are you? In a few minutes we have left. What are some of the, the books that you've read to to that have educated you and you used to educate um, your congregation? Um, one of the big ones for me, and this was this was back in seminary, um, was a book called "Learning to Be White" by Tendaker who is a, a UU minister. Um, and she explored um, the origins of uh, racism in the United States, which, of course, are all tied up with the um, appearance of uh, a class structure as well. Uh, you know, the wealthy whites had a vested interest in keeping down the poor whites. And one of the ways to do that was to make um, people of color the, the scapegoats for the problems of the poor whites instead of the poor whites recognizing that it was the rich whites who were actually responsible for their poverty um, and from there she goes into talking about how um, I mean whiteness is a social construct yes. uh, there's no biological basis for it so anybody who's born into a society where there is white privilege and white supremacy has to be taught that and taught how it works. Right. Um, and so she talks about that in the, in the rest of that book. Um, so that's definitely one of the, the one of the ones that's really influenced me um, in terms of understanding some of these issues. Um, these days, although I still very much love books, um, most of my information, frankly, is coming from um, what uh, is, is written and published online. 
Um, so, so for instance, one of the ones that really started me thinking about um, accountability and the relationships that we need to have um, in working on this was um, an article by somebody called D.D. Delgado, which is entitled Whites Only, uh, Surge, which stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice, and the Caucasian Invasion of Racial Justice Spaces. Um, and, and this was really eye-opening in terms of how um, people of color experience these mostly white racial justice groups like Showing Up for Racial Justice, um, and how in many ways they are still perpetuating white supremacy even though they claim that their whole reason for existing is to tackle it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's so much material out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, Andrew, our time has run out. Um, sure. <laughs> I certainly appreciate you taking the time today to, to talk with us, and we're going to do this again in the near future. Uh, oh, my pleasure. Host of, host of other things to talk to you about. Uh, this has been Front Porch Conversational Justice uh, with Charles Cheek, your host, and uh, we were fortunate to have Andrew Millard with us today. And I'm, I'm just going to use this quote to end the show. Every person has value as a member of the human family. Have a blessed day. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.